Hi, um, everybody uh, who's listening to this podcast, um, to hell and back. And this is Charlie Swenson, and this is, uh, I think, the fourth podcast. Uh, so I'm kind of getting some of the ropes here. Um, haven't yet had a technical problem today. And uh, I'm really excited about today, and I'll tell you why, because it could uh, sound like that. Um, it wouldn't be very exciting, but it's quite the opposite for me. Um, today, I really want to expand on what I talked about last time, uh, which was observing, the use of observing um, with what it means in this context, which I'll probably say more about, um, to uh, cope with life, to cope with all kinds of things. Um, and uh, the reason I'm excited is that this is something that for, I don't know, 25 or 30 years, I've taught in DBT skills groups and individuals, um, but uh, one never gets this much time to really go into it, and it's because it's one skill out of so many. But the fact is that this skill is such a core of the whole program, and it's such a core to lots of other things that um, are effective things to do when you're... Um, just getting through life and especially the hard parts. So I, I'm just welcoming the chance to say more about it. Um, so that really the plan today is going to be to go, uh, I'm going to do a, a, a brief summary of the main points I made last time, if you didn't listen or even if you did listen, um, and, then, uh, and, and then go into a variety of other things about observing, including more practical aspects of how do you do it and what are the problems that come up. Um, so let's see. First thing I thought I would do is uh, I want um, to highlight, you know, the meaning for me, why it's so important, and it's just not, there's no one way to explain it. Uh, the observing, I want to tell you a little story. Um, when I was in medical school, uh, you'll have to bear with me because it won't be obvious at first why this is related to that, but I, when I was in medical school, we were expected to do a kind of a, a thesis, a research thesis, not quite as extensive as a PhD dissertation, but um, maybe partway there and substantial. And I decided to study children, uh, the psychological experiences of, of toddlers in the hospital and their parents when they're toddlers in the hospital. And uh, one of the things that got me interested in that is that I spent some time as a medical student on pediatric wards. And I would be part of uh, what were called child life programs as a volunteer uh, helping out with, uh, you know, with the kids getting to know the kids and helping them cope and helping them get ready for what they had to go through in the hospital and learning about them. Um, and uh, I started to notice that the toddlers who are pretty wide awake and aware and they're old enough to see what's going on but not old enough to do much about it most of the time, um, and they're out of their home environment, and very often their parents are not there. And I started to wonder about them. Um, and I started to the project by uh, sitting in pediatric rooms of toddlers um, for hours 
uh, consecutive hours, and some of those would be overnight because I wanted to see at different times of day, evening, and night, what's life like for a two-and-a-half-year-old in the hospital dealing with some kind of surgical procedure. In particular, I narrowed down to uh, and, uh, kids, kids around two-and-a-half, if, they, if they're born with a cleft palate, um, you know, the, the hole in the top of their palate, their mouth, if you don't know what that is, um, it's a, a deformity and it can be repaired, but you don't, re- at least in those days, I don't know the surgical procedures now, but you didn't repair it until they were about that age. And so then you would. So you've got a two-and-a-half-year-old in the hospital and they're going to have surgery on their roof of their mouth and they're going to have to stay still afterwards and it's going to interfere with talking and eating and things. Uh, and I just thought, what a horror. Um, and so I decided to watch them uh, in the hospital before and after the surgery. And so, and I recorded things, and I was allowed to videotape even uh, with everybody's consent. And then I could really study the videotapes of what they were going through step by step. And at times it was uh, like watching a long, slow, uh, agonizing situation where they're in the, in the room and the nurse comes in, and the nurse is quite often lively and caring and maternal and energetic, comes in and talks to the kid, and the kid gets up but looks a little discouraged because it isn't who they hoped it was, and then uh, the nurse might pick the kid up for a little bit. And, and from the nurse's point of view, you could, could see in the chart notes that this child is doing very well. And then she'd leave or he'd leave, and then I would see what happened because then the kids would, uh, would sit down in their crib and uh, start dealing with, uh, you know, they had a favorite stuffed animal that's there, and they would, one of them I'm remembering would then stand up and then throw it out on the floor and then look at it and then reach for it through the bars of the crib with nobody else there. And I had sworn myself to just being an observer. By the way, this is where observing first comes into this story. And, uh, but then I would cheat. I mean, I must say, uh, that when, I, when I actually did a formal study, I then didn't, but I wasn't in exactly that situation. But I just, I really didn't want to intervene as much as see what, what is life like. Um, and so that, it would be things like that. And then you'd see a doctor come in and not to, you know, not to put this on all doctors, because there's very few that would act like this, but a surgeon came into one two-and-a-half-year-old uh, who was standing up in the crib and, and reaches out his hand as to shake hands the way an adult would, and the kid reaches over, and he, the guy grabs the hand and says, Hi, I'm, I'm Dr. Smith, and I'm covering for your other doctor, who's Dr. So-and-so, and I just want to know how you're doing. Like, I thought, Oh, my God. Uh, with his two-and-a-half-year-old away from home. So lots of things like that. It's just I started to see that this environment is actually just filled with this day and night, and there was a big movement a little before that time of rooming in, of parents rooming in. But actually, when I studied that aspect of this study, parents uh, were uh, told they could room in, but actually the staff was not acting in a way that would make it very comfortable. You still felt like an outsider. They, they, the hospital board had not really made it a welcoming place for a parent to be. And so many parents who knew they, their heart told them they should stay, but they felt so uncomfortable, they would then stay and then they'd go home. So when I watched these kids, I, just, I was an observer, and I don't think I'd ever been specifically in that role before, and I just thought, 
the kids would start looking at me and noticing that I was there. And uh, may or may not have been true. Uh, I felt like over time, as long as I now and then responded to them, which I, again was a violation of my code, but but I had another code. And they, uh, you know, they seemed more a little comforted by the fact that I was sitting there. And then it wasn't until after the whole project, believe it or not, you know, I'm supposed to be an insightful person. But, you know, when something just doesn't want to come to mind, it just doesn't. doesn't matter how insightful you are at first. But I didn't, uh, I, I, it turns out, though I had never made this connection before that, I was a child at that age in the hospital. I was a child uh, six weeks in the hospital, at three months in the hospital. I was a child at two, two years in the hospital for various different things, a couple of which could have been pretty frightening uh, to have. And uh, I came through it all right, and I sort of swore at from age three on, I will never be sick again, which, of course, has not exactly worked out. But I did uh, take a stance in life to not let that happen again. And uh, even though I have no conscious memories of these things, I realized, you know what, what I didn't have I didn't have an observer in the room. I didn't even have an observer. I didn't have a parent watching. I know that from talking to my parents and how hospitals were in those days. And, uh, and I know I was uh, sick and feeling terrible. And, uh, and, and, I, and, and, you know, there wasn't somebody sitting. There wasn't somebody looking out for me other than the nurses. And one of the main findings of my study, and I, I'm not going to go into the whole study, but it was that uh, the nursing staff, uh, and the doctors, but especially I was interested in nursing staff because they're the sort of caretakers of the environment and, and they're, they really are trained to be caring with children. Um, they had no idea what was going on, uh, even the ones that did the best job. You know, you just can't. You can't have your eye on so many kids. So the lack of observing put these kids in a certain kind of psychological jeopardy from my point of view. And, um, and it was uh, it was disturbing to think that I had been in that kind of position, and uh, and now you know uh, observing I think is a a big concept uh, that's both uh, personal and interpersonal, and most of what I'm talking about I'm going to get back to now is intrapersonal. It's really for a person to use observing for various functions uh, to cope and. Um, uh, but I, I just wanted to tell you, I think the whole concept of observing, think about children's, children that are playing uh, sports or dance or performance and how important it can be for them to have an, a parent just watching, like not even speaking about it, not even giving feedback. And all the things parents want to do after these things is talk about it. And the kid doesn't want to talk about it usually. Um, but, uh, but the observing seems to be important. Um, and one other thing, I, when my, uh, one of my sons was in sixth grade and they went on a class five-day trip in the woods called Nature's Classroom that they have in Massachusetts. I don't know if they have in other states. Um, and I went there as a parent chaperone and I watched this incredibly skillful, very goofy-seeming sixth grade teacher, Peter. Um, how, do, how did he cope with like two classrooms of kids? And he was the main authority when they're, you know, just chaos could break loose. And what he did, I, I just put it together when I was thinking about all this, is he, every time there was free time and the kids were hanging out in this monk house, and then they were supposed to go somewhere next and get ready, which, you know, you'd imagine it'd be very hard to get everybody going and keep the conflicts down and everything. Peter actually would just sit, and he would sit on a chair in the hallway in a place that could see into each of the three rooms where kids were staying in this bunkhouse. 
And he would say nothing, and he would seem very kindly from my point of view. I don't know how they saw him, and no one ever commented on it. It was as if he was a silent observer that nobody interacted with, even though the kids mostly liked him, but he was a kind of formal person. And uh, I think just watching how the kids coped with the whole situation, I think just the fact that he was a silent observer uh, was a certain function that a group of uh, middle schoolers on an outing like that where all hell could break loose, uh, it just went very smoothly. I don't know how much to attribute to that, but it, it, it struck me as the same kind of thing. The, the power of observation in helping somebody regulate their emotions and regulate their interactions with other people. So I want to move on from that, but I just wanted to um, tell you, you know, this, this thing kind of reaches back to me more than just a meditative technique that I think is really valuable. Um, okay. So I'm going to give you a very brief summary of the points that I think I made last time. Um, I, I say that because actually I was able to listen to the tape, the, uh, the podcast, because now they're on my website as well as the NEA BPD website, borderlinepersonalitydisorder.com, and mine is charlieswenson.com. And you can go there, and there's now three podcasts, and this one will be there within a couple days. But I listened to it, so I made sure I heard what I said it's you always cringe when you listen to yourself especially talk listen to yourself talking to yourself i mean i think things that i think are funny and then i laugh and not knowing what anybody's doing (laughs) whether anybody's listening anyway i did get a summary and it's this first of all um in in the practice of dbt dialectical behavior therapy this one set of skills is called the core mindfulness skills They're the skills that are taught first, usually, and they're taught frequently throughout the training. And the idea is that they are the core mindfulness skills because they're core to the other sets of skills. And I think think even in talking about observing, it'll be obvious why. And the observing is one of six skills among those core skills, and it is kind of the um, core of the core. I think the whole concept is in observing. Um, the whole concept of all of the mindfulness skills, and then there are certain specific things about observing that differentiate it from the other five. Um, So I'm going to stick with observing for now because it's great to have a chance to do like a deep class in this one skill, uh, which could go a long ways in someone's life. I gave an example. I gave a couple of examples, and I'll just quickly remind you because they cover main points about this. One was a 19-year-old woman in an inpatient hospital program who was extremely distressed about an upcoming family meeting, felt suicidal, felt like hurting herself. She was really emotionally kind of close to out of control. And a nurse took her outside, uh, and the two of them stood under the rain and put their faces pointing upward and just let the rain fall on their faces after overcoming some reluctance um, in this patient. Uh, and they, they got wet, and they did that for a while, and then the patient, uh, they, they came back in, and it was, she was remarkably better, and she reported the next day that um, she's never, ever uh, noticed that an intense bad emotion could kind of come and go or come and reduce without her having to do anything else about it. Of course, what she did about it was she took some time And in the context of doing it with this nurse, which probably mattered too because it was such a caring thing, the nurse did. But, you know, they did nothing other than just look up at the sky. They didn't talk about her feelings or or try to change them in any way. She She just got rooted in the moment 
in something that would have been hard to ignore, which was the water coming down on her face. Um, and then I gave an example from my childhood, which was a different example of how powerful observing can be when I told you that my dentist, uh, when I was a kid, would do hypnosis to uh, regulate pain or help reduce pain, and that once he had me in, a, in, a, in a, what apparently was a hypnotic trance or induction, uh, it would make the suggestion that I was not going to, I would feel the pain when he drilled, but that it wouldn't bother me. And then much to my uh, surprise and thank God pleasure, uh, it didn't. And uh, I, it was painful and it didn't bother me. And so to separate out observing the, tru the truth, which was this is painful, but have it be distinguished from the add-on, as I called it last time, the add-on, which is this is going to be horrible or going to the dentist is horrible or, be, or this kind of pain is unbearable. If you say those things to yourself, as opposed to saying, you know, just notice that you're going to notice there is pain, but it's not going to bother you. It's, it was quite dramatic for me, and it sort of formed uh, a thought that I never uh, forgot. Um, so those were two different examples of using observing, and I think it's important to see because these are two major different ways to use observing in a bad situation. One uh, is observing something that distracts you from the pain. Uh, the rain on the face helps bring in contact with present reality, with sensations other than the pain, and it helps the pain then be able to, it allows the pain to follow what's a more natural course, the emotional pain there. And then the other one is more um, going into the pain. It's really saying, you know, let's focus on the pain. This is going to be painful. Uh, so it's like going into the fire. It's going into the thing that you wish you could get away from and doing it uh, with just pure observing, just noticing it, and in this case also with a suggestion that, that it wasn't going to bother me. But, uh, but the same concept is there even without saying that. Um, and then I made the point that uh, when we're observing, focusing on observing, what I mean is that we observe the world, we make contact with the realities of the world through our five senses, uh, sensory modalities, and we make contact with our inner world, our inner reality of our bodies, our organ systems, our, uh, you know, our thoughts, our uh, urges, and uh, all kinds of things, discomfort and comfort in our bodies, we have the capacity to sense those things in our bodies. So it's sort of an internal observer going on. So we can observe what's going on outside and observe what's going inside. And that's the read, read in into our brains, into our nervous systems of what's going on. And then we run with that. You know, we go places with that. We, we make meaning out of it. We recruit the past instances of similar things. We imagine the future of how this is going to go. We, we compare it to other experiences and other people. So, but, but all of that is a step beyond observing. So just realize observing is kind of a pure just registering when it comes to how emotions form, for instance, in, in one's experience. This is just the registration of a stimulus and in itself the idea of just focusing your attention on what's around you what's coming into you from inside and outside is just observing and i'm going to say things about what it's not in a little bit i gave examples of add-ons so for instance i gave an example that a criticism that somebody could 
become the target of a criticism. And let's say it's a person who's had some bad uh, experiences in life with uh, critics early in life. And, uh, and so the criticism might just be somebody saying, gee, you're, that wasn't a very good job you did when you stood up and gave that speech, which, you know, is, isn't either kind or unkind. It might have been just factual, but it, and, and, and however it was delivered, for somebody, they're going to hear it uh, as not only the objective input through the nervous system, it's coming there, but as soon as it moves on, it's, it becomes like a, like a catastrophic hailstorm of criticism uh, without really um, realizing that um, it's been amplified by oneself. Because usually when you do that, you're thinking, this was terrible. I just keep getting terribly criticized. It's another example of how the world works and people criticize me. And why do they do that? It's really like shooting me and, and scarring me. And so it, it's sort of like the criticism itself is reality, whatever it is. And then it leads to a number of catastrophic responses in some cases. Other, other cases, if someone has a whole different frame of mind, they could take that criticism and say, could you tell me more about how you didn't think that was a very good speech? Because I'm trying to become better. You know, if somebody has that kind of response, um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's it's elaborated on with a different add-on. It's an opportunity. Um, now, another example, and I gave a sample of this, but I'm not going to go back into it because it was a long example I gave about it, something that happened between me and one of my cousins. Uh, but I, it was where there was a lack of response. To an inquiry, and that led, in my case, to a kind of um, a growing it mushroomed over time, when there kept being a non-response into a, a sense of not being cared about and what had happened to our relationship. So, it also became a, I wouldn't call it catastrophic, but painful and sad. And I didn't know what to do until I learned actually that he just hadn't been getting my emails um, all that time. And then, and then he reassured me in a, in a genuine way. So, it, again, it shows how we can go from reality and how we can elaborate on it and how that can amplify the hell that we are, might already be in. Um, okay, so let me just, summarizing that, say that you might say that often hell or adversity or painful experiences or suffering often start out by coming from uh, something in reality, you know, a nightmarish circumstance outside yourself, uh, something you're trapped in, something that's uh, haunting you, some, something that's hurting you, somebody that's hurting you, um, an event in your life that's an injury or an illness coming from within that's painful. And so it's all very, just, it's absolutely a re realistic response. It's called pain. It's called suffering. And, and it's part of life. And it comes from without and from within. And then um, that original insult can be multiplied uh, by the nightmarish interpretations of what's going on or the linkages between that and what's already in, in the mind, in the brain, in the memory. Um, so it can go, go a number of places once it's there. And what I, my point is going to be, I mean, some of the message is that the using really ably and significantly using the skill of observing under those conditions gives you a better chance to not amplify it gives you a better chance to figure out what to do. It, it kind of cr creates 
options and if you don't do observing if you don't consciously notice that the situation that you're in um, is caught is triggering even worse thoughts and worse images and worse urges and emotions you might not realize that there's anything that could even be done there you just have to respond to the bigger catastrophe um, I in this context I told the story of a young woman who was in isolation in prison that I then interviewed through a slot in the in the door and uh, and that she was feeling like she was in a terrible situation sitting in that room by herself and uh, and then I uh, I could see that the way she thought about it was making it intolerable and that by making it intolerable she was then acting with people in ways that kept her stuck in that room uh, and at a certain point in talking to her and asking her if she could just observe what's around her and just focus uh, on something and tell me about it um, that maybe she could settle a little bit rather than constantly focusing on the thought this is terrible this is terrible I can't stand it in here which led her to actually become aggressive if, if anybody came within reach and I told her you know it might help her get out if she stopped trying to get out um, there was a paradox here um, so so kind of moving on now how is it that we can see things more accurately I mean how do we do that in a way that leads to more constructive choices uh, either more to better tolerance of what's going on or better decisions about what might be able to be done to moderate the experience or the emotions or, or even to get out of it um, and I'd say you know your first answer in most cases and I've sort of thought this through while I was preparing for this all the different things we do myself uh, probably you guys uh, other people do in difficult situations and there are lots of things we do but you know what most of the good ones really start with observing it's like the entryway into the whole package um, so I'd put it this way you know the overall idea is that if you find yourself trapped in a painful situation uh, that you might consider hell of some sort you're likely to be better off in the long run if you keep your eyes open I mean let's imagine them as a metaphor that you're actually in a place that is strewn with bad stuff and you don't want to step on any of it or run into it or it's going to hurt you you know you want your eyes open because if you just try to blindly trudge through hell you're going to run into things and that includes your own thoughts and it includes other interactions with people so first of all you want to if possible have your eyes open and wake up and see what's there and when you see it not so thoroughly freak out that it distorts your vision you know you, you tolerate you acknowledge that it's extremely upsetting and see what you can do including observing but other skills as well to bring down your emotions down below a certain level where you can look around and say huh what am I going to do how am I going to get out of this um, or or how am I going to get through this or how long is this going to last or those kind of questions that are actually problem-solving questions they're very hard to get to when you're still caught up in the way I've been talking about um, so when when reality sends evocative painful stimuli your way uh, criticism injury assault abuse neglect emptiness 
sadness, loneliness, things, whatever it is that's really hard for a given person to bear. Um, it seems natural. It just seems the way our mind works. In a way, unfortunately, I guess I think observing has to be a very active, almost revolutionary skill. You have to act against what seems to be an automatic tendency to assimilate the stimuli into our own larger patterns in our minds so that no longer is this a criticism from somebody that I could just turn over and think about. This is now an assault because it's added up with all the other criticisms that have come my way, and that makes it much harder to deal with than actually staying in the moment. Um, because it isn't just this particular insult. It's, 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 it's one of a thousand, or it's one of a pattern. Uh, so our emotional responses, our thoughts, our actions, our reactions to the whole thing, rather than the reality of the moment. So observing, now defi- defining it, because I, I realize when I listen to it, you know, I kind of talked around it a lot, but let me just say exactly what I mean it to be, what I'm talking about, and what it's talked about as in DBT and in other settings that are informed also by um, either spiritual practices uh, or secular practices of things like this. Observing is a practice of bringing attention to the here and now, reality, as experienced through our five senses and our internal sensing just say it again because to me this is the bedrock observing is a practice of bringing attention to the here and now reality as experienced through our five senses and our internal capacity to sense what's going on several things about it one cannot observe the past we can observe a memory of the past, but the past is done. We cannot observe the future. It's not here. It may never come in the form we're thinking about it. In fact, it probably won't. And it means that all we really have is this moment. It is all that is real. It is all that you can hang on to and say, this is real. You know, and what happens is the, the past then hijacks it. The future hijacks it when we get anxious and think, oh my God, you're a parent. And you say, my child is never, ever going to launch. They're never going to get a job. They have this problem and that problem. They're never going to be able to fend for themselves. What am I going to do? And you get going in that, and that may or may not be true at all, but you don't know. But the reality for you is you just got hijacked from the future as if you could know. you know, And, and your emotional... Your emotional responses in the moment are now being driven by something that is imaginary. It's like getting caught in a movie. You fall into a movie and suddenly you're in this spastic movie that's going on about your future. I mean, we've all been there. I go there all the time. I just, that's where my mind goes more than anything else. And then, um, or, or our mind goes to the past if we've been badly mistreated. It's just typical. It's natural. So, the idea is there is only this moment. And if we could ground ourselves in here and now, in this moment reality, from that place, we can consider the past without buying it, without being taken over by it. I mean, that would be one of the goals, of course, of doing exposure treatment in, in, in uh, working on trauma 
is to be able to hold ourselves steady in the present, remembering we're in the present, and invite the past in. Invite the past. It's now a guest in the present. It isn't our, uh, because the opposite is that our present gets stolen by the past, and we're stuck in the past, and we can't get out. It's very hard to do much about it at that point. Um, but we can do more if we really are grounded in the present and we bring the past in and we consider it. The same thing, by the way, about the future. If we can ground ourselves in this present moment, whatever it is, and say, you know what, let me consider the future in a way that's less hijacked, less anxious. I mean, still would be anxious. So there's nothing... <laughs> perfectionistic about this. It's all just trying to move in the right direction that gives us more sanity and gives us better decision-making and creates more of what in DBT in this module we call wise mind. How do you get to wise mind? Well, you've got to be grounded in the present moment. And observing is one of your main techniques for grounding yourself in the present moment. I mean, I could be with my family. I have been with my family when I was first starting to learn these skills. And we'd be driving along on a Sunday, and I'd have these two little boys in the back seat and my wife next to me. And, you know, they'd all be being two and six years old, and my wife's dealing with them, and I'm driving. And what am I doing? I would notice then sometimes, because of the way my mind works, I'm thinking about stuff. I'm thinking, you know, it's like nonstop. I, it's like a nonstop stream of thought about what I'm doing in my life and maybe something I'm writing or something I'm thinking about or something I've read or somebody I want to talk to. Meanwhile, there's my family within arm's reach of me. And where am I? I'm in outer space at that point. And when I realized that, I thought, oh, my God, how do I get back? Because it's not so easy, as I'm sure you know. You, just, you can't just say to yourself, oh, get back in there. You can't just do that. It doesn't work. You have to get grounded in the present and then you have a better chance. And so what I would do then that really would work, it was one of these moments I thought, wow, this, this is powerful. It's, it's, so in, it's so invisible. I hope people know about this because it's so, so invisible, but it's so powerful. And I just would breathe and notice the air rushing through my nose or in my nose, out of my nose. I'd notice my abdomen moving. And I would take maybe just like a, one minute of just noticing the breath, letting my thinking about things go. Just let it go. Just say to myself, because this always helped me, to just say, thinking. And when I would do that, the thoughts would kind of like just be shaken or they would actually sometimes kind of dissolve and I couldn't even remember what I was just thinking. It's sort of like I shot it out of the sky and now I'm just there. And then I found that if I did that for one minute, I would suddenly hear one of the things my kids was saying that was very funny and I would start laughing. And then, guess what? I was there. I went from not being there to there. How did I get there? By observing. By observing what? By observing my breath. Could I could have been from observing something else, right? It was, what it was was that my breath is part of present moment sensational reality as opposed to thought reality about what am I going to do about this or what am I going to do about that, which is kind of far afield from this moment. So it's really grounding yourself often in sensory experience in the moment and then there you are you know and you have a better chance of being there so you know if, if you have that problem that i have had and still struggle with sometimes i'm better at it now i'm quicker to recognize it i'm quicker to use these things 
and it, it makes me, uh, in the long run, more likely to be present, which then makes a big difference to them. Um, okay, so next point about observing. So observing, um, let's see. Observing is all about being here and now. It's a grounding technique. It's an entry point into connecting with reality, and it helps us to dissect reality from other interpretations that are going on in our, in our minds and other intrusions from the past or the future. Uh, and uh, let me say something, uh, give an example of how I mean this. This week I was talking with somebody who is soon to face a court hearing. And this person is facing a court hearing that will uh, determine a very uh, huge thing in this person's life. And I'll, let's just say for the sake of argument and for not violating anybody's privacy, that this is a, uh, I'll make it up, that it, this is a person, this is a young man who it's going to be determined whether uh, an infraction that he had the past week is going to require that he return to jail for a year at the age of 21 when he just got out and he was just starting to do well. And he did this thing and when he was being thoughtless, and it was not a bad thing, but it might result in that, and he's going to have a court hearing. So he was racked with fear when I talked to him, and sadness, and anger, and like, how could I have done this, and how could they do this? And it was back and forth, blaming himself, blaming them, blaming his, his family in various ways. And uh, was afraid that the way he was feeling was going to interfere with how he presented himself in court. And he felt, my God, if I, if I still feel this way when I get in the court, I'm not going to be able to speak. I'm not going to be able to speak without saying certain things that are probably going to get me thrown in jail. So what am I going to do? You know, he was at the same time being hijacked by his read of past incidents of bad things that had happened to him, and it was just going to be one more. And, and of course, a realistic read that he might be put in jail now and by his anticipation of the, this future. So his current emotions were not being driven by the fact that he was sitting talking to me. They were being driven by anticipation and that and that was that's understandable right i'm not going to argue that wouldn't be understandable the same thing would happen to me but he was far from the present in a certain emotional way and i suggested that he just observe something in this moment in this present moment like i did with my breath with my family that he let go of the hijackers like let the future hijackers go let the past hijackers go and just enter into me into something, enter with me into something else that's really grounded in the here and now. And I asked if he had a suggestion. And he suggested that we take a walk. And so we actually went outside in uh, downtown Northampton, where I work, and uh, we looked at storefronts, talked about things, laughed at about a couple things. And then we were able to sort of sit on, on a bench across the street at, the, at a courthouse where there's a courthouse. And we sat outside, and we just looked at people going by. And in a calmer way, he started to discuss recent incidents and how it is that he ended up doing this infraction that he did and how, how he wished he hadn't done that, but very much grounded in the present now. And, and, and at that point, he started to be able to, to uh, even talk about the things he was afraid of with the court hearing and how he wanted to present. And observing was the key. It was key that he was able to uh, realize. He observed that he was being hijacked. I mean, that's the first observation. Oh, my God, what's happening to me? 
not only am I in an unfortunate situation, but what is happening to me? I'm, I'm getting so worked up, I'm going to be useless about this. And what, it, what is going on? And you don't have to figure it all out. It's not psychoanalysis here. It's really just having something to do that can bring you back down. And, and then uh, he could choose to observe uh, from in the present moment, and then he could, uh, he could back off from where he had been, and he could start to be more um, reality-focused, let's say. Now, you might notice that I'm using observing in different ways as I go along, and really what I would probably say is they're different facets of the same thing. So to be just more concise, more clear, and even more practical so that we all stand a better chance of using observing um, to enhance our lives and to cope with suffering, I would say this. You know, to observe is to return to our senses. That'd be one just definitive statement. Return to our senses, our five senses, the internal sensing, as, as distinguished from being on a runaway train of emotional thinking. To observe is to focus attention on some object or activity or experience in this moment recognizing that this moment is different than last moment and that things are constantly changing and evolving, but that it is bringing our attention. Notice how big a role attention plays along with observing, and they are two different things. You can make decisions to pay attention to one or another aspect of your surroundings, and that could be an important choice. And observing might help you make that choice. And then you could observe what you're paying attention to. So I want you to think about these as two kind of invisible functions, observing and attention, that between the two of them are, are hugely important in regulating emotions. And to recognize judgments, you know, and, and so that you can, you can recognize judgments uh, with your, your observing. Um, Another way, another aspect of observing, because that all of what I've just been saying, I'm mainly relying on the type of observing that is uh, focusing your attention on a thing, an experience, an activity, a thought. It's really just a focus type of observing. But there is the other type, which is the opening the mind observing, which is really just to be an observer uh, like I was in that hospital room, where you don't stop the flow of what's going on outside or inside. You don't hold on to it. You don't manipulate it. You don't pursue things just because they cross your mental field and you find them desirable. When you're observing with open mind or open field observation, you're letting anything, everything, negative and positive, coming and going. If you try to hang on to the positive, it will create trouble when you need to let go of it or when it disappears and will make you more fearful of the negative. If you try to push away the negative, unfortunately, it'll come back through the back door, usually in, uh, in stronger form. So you really want to, if you want to reduce negative experiences or memories or thoughts, in the long run, the most helpful thing you can do is not to push them away. It's to let them come and let them go and let them come and let them wash over you and then tolerate them and let them go. And, and magically enough, for whatever exact reason this works, non-suppression works to reduce the intensity of that. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So let me just... There was something I just, it slipped my mind. There it went. It'll hopefully come back in. Uh, <laughs> um, by the way, it's been 45 minutes, and I, I hope this is of interest, and you're not just like, oh, my God, he's talking so much, um, because, of course, that's what I'm doing, and I, I might, I'm going to figure out a way to have more interaction, uh, if I can, with you guys, uh, whoever's uh, been listening. Um, I'll say something about that at the end, but. I just I hope it's useful, and you're taking whatever breaks you need from me. Um, so let me just see. Of this, I've got some a couple notes here that I want to see if uh, there are certain practices I was going to have us do, but I want to get through uh, a few more things here. So from Linehan's teaching of observing, her most important metaphor, if you don't already know it. And if you do know it, you can always revisit this metaphor and really think further what it means. Is Teflon mind. And Teflon is, uh, I don't know if people still get Teflon pans. They probably don't call it Teflon now, but it's Calphalon mind or something. But Teflon mind is where um, thoughts and sensations, emotions, perceptions, urges, images, whatever comes through the mind can come in, be there, not stick not get stuck, and then can go out. Um, so that uh, um, you can have a thought about something that could be triggering, could be upsetting, and you, you, but you're doing something else. You're working at a cafeteria. You're making sandwiches for people, and somebody comes up and they say something critical to you about the sandwich you made, and it reminds you of how you were treated as a kid by, your, by one of your parents. And it just like comes to your mind. So Teflon mind at that moment, because you're not busy doing psychotherapy, group therapy session with this guy. You're, you know, it's, you're trying to do your job. If you can practice Teflon mind, you notice what he said. You notice how it impacted you. That's still observing. You're just noticing. And then what happens is your mind gets complicated by the fact that it, uh, it gets uh, joined by the past. And then when that happens, you usually lose your current observing and current mindfulness, and you get caught up in that, and you want to react to that. But if you can, sort of the PhD of observing would be if at that moment you were also then able to observe that you had now activated these memories from the past of being criticized. And you would let them come and you would let them go, and if possible. So that would be the idea, the, the extreme capacity to observe. Um, and so I'm just putting it out there, not because that one would be very easy, but it really captures that Teflon mind means not only the original thing that comes into your mind, but the thing that it recruits from your your memory banks, you also can approach that by just observing it, not listening to it, not taking it seriously in, in the way that you can. Um, I'll just say in terms of being mindful of thoughts, uh, it was such a change for me when I went from my first sort of career plan, where, which was a number of years of, of learning and then practicing psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic psychotherapy, um, where thoughts and following trails of thoughts, including the therapist's own thoughts, is a very important part 
of the therapy is that you stay with the thoughts and you're looking for the meaning. This is a very different relationship with thoughts to observe thoughts. When you observe thoughts, you have a thought comes into your mind. To observe a thought is to observe it the way you would observe a bird that's going by or a leaf that's falling out of a tree in the autumn. It's sort of like, okay, there went that thought. There went that thought. And you don't, if you get into the innards of the thought, the interior of the thought, you might follow the thought and it'll trigger more thoughts and you'll be, next thing you know, and you won't know how long it's been going on for usually, you're like, hey, wait a minute. I'm now thinking about all this stuff. I thought I was observing something else. Um, so it's kind of like how do you not go down uh, the thoughts? You, you keep realizing you're observing thoughts, whether you have a Nobel Prize winning thought or a thought about a tuna sandwich. They're the same from the point of view of observing. You just observe that one's a tuna sandwich thought and the other's a Nobel Prize winning thought. And, uh, and you let them come and you let them go. That's part of observing and it keeps you more balanced. Um, okay. By the way, um, speaking of observing and, and speaking like I am now, I'm trying, it's, and it's been going on and off while I've been doing this, but just so you know, while I'm speaking today, and I made a sort of commitment to myself before I started, I was going to try to keep using observe while I spoke so that I would observe the impact on me of my own speaking, and I would observe when my voice, when I got caught up in something. And uh, you might not know this because you don't know all of what I might have said, but I've been, I've let a lot of things just come and go because it just seemed all of a sudden like too much. Um, but I do want to highlight that you can do observing when you do anything. You can do observing when you're practicing uh, observing. <laughs> you can do observing when you're talk, giving a talk or when you're doing your artwork or whatever it is. Um, so let's see. Next, uh, oh, and I was going to say that uh, I I have a I have the opportunity to be going on a fairly frequent basis to Italy and teaching DBT, and um, when I teach there, I have uh, an interpreter because most of the Italians they're mostly psychologists, but other disciplines also. But most of them don't speak good enough English at all to carry on a conversation or to understand what I'm saying. So the interpre- I speak for three or four sentences, and then the interpreter speaks for three or four sentences. Actually, it takes 30% longer to say things in Italian than in English, I've learned. But, uh, but whatever, she, we alternate. And I thought at first, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. It's going to be so boring uh, and also take so long. It turns out not at all to be true. And I've, it's become an asset um, because uh, – and the people who go – I, I would think they'd be frustrated, but they're not. They say it's very nice to be able to hear what I've said, like a, ma- a main point that I've made, and then just be letting their mind drift or take it in while I speak English, which they don't even try to understand. And then they listen to the next point, and I get the same thing, where I, I basically I'm giving a day-long workshop or five days of workshops sometimes where... I'm pausing in between every main point long enough to consider 
what I just said and to consider the next point. There's a greater observing going on in the middle of speaking. And I, it's act, it has not dramatically changed it, but significantly influenced how I give talks uh, in English now, here. Um, another comment, another important point about observing that uh, comes up, and Linehan brings it up, but it comes up everywhere, is this concept of, of beginner's mind that every single moment that we pay attention to something, that we observe something, is unique. It never happened before. It may resemble some moments that have happened before. It will never happen again. It is absolutely, you know, indescribably, in a way, unique. It is a precious moment. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh often teaches about this when he teaches about present moment experience, being in the present moment, etc. And he says, you know, that most of us miss most of our appointments with the present moment most of our lives, which means we missed most of it. <laughs> it's kind of discouraging. He says it in a very Thich Nhat Hanh way, which is, actually generates more insight than despair. But uh, it's sort of disturbing. Um, but I think the idea is that yeah, this, all there is is this moment. I mean, you guys are listening to me. I'm talking to you. Um, this is it. This is everything. And to observe is to wake up to that again and again. Though next time you wake up, it's to something else or to a different moment. Um, but it's really, um, you know, it's just waking up again and again is part of the concept of observing and realizing that. And it really can be helpful because if you're a psychotherapist or if you just have a friendship or a family relationship that just keeps seeming stuck, if you can let your mind go in this pathway and say, you know what? It's a different moment. Actually, everything is different. It may not look different. It may not feel different. But if you say to yourself, same old, same old, it'll probably keep staying and seeming the same old. It isn't going to stay same old. It's going to be different. But we can convince ourselves that nothing is happening. Um, and then it actually can create more despair and, and make us give up rather than continue to have energy. Um, and it is, under, it is typical that our minds fly away from observing on a regular basis. We interpret our observations we judge them we label them we do all of these things i've been mentioning you know and and so therefore observing is to go against the grain and proactively bring ourselves back into the moment by observing and in the moment do observing to observe the present which will make us more skillful at almost whatever we do next like i've had somebody that hated their job like the like the young woman in prison would say, my job is so awful. It's so boring. This happens and this happens. I said, but, you, but, but you're, you're describing this that happens and that happens accounts for about, you know, like that sounds like about 1% of the time of your day. Yeah, but you don't understand. It's like it just creates a whole atmosphere. I said, no, I understand atmosphere of a job, and I know some are more pleasant than others. But, I'm, but I'm, no, I'm just noticing that what you're saying to yourself over and over again um, might be influencing how you're experiencing the next moment. Do you ever just go in there in the morning and think, you know, I'm going to see what I noticed today? No, of course not. I know what I'm going to notice today. And, and it became a kind of like a, a back and forth between us about is it possible to go in and just 
be an observer. It's sort of like, you know, you know how we, some people have had a relationship a long time will try to rekindle, you know, their romantic life by pretending it's the first time they met or their first date or something. It's like, it's like beginner. It's, it really is a new moment. Um, another thing, when we have an urge to stop observing, um, that's always a challenge because we don't, really, we don't want to continue to observe. Often it happens without us realizing it. We just stop observing, and then we remember that we stopped observing. But if you feel like, I don't want, I'm sick of this observing stuff. I just want to get immersed in the past or the future or thinking about things. You know, we can respond by just going with the urge to get out of the moment, or we could go with returning to observing the way if you want to scratch an itch, but you've decided, but I'm not going to scratch an itch right now, then you just observe the evolution of the itch, and it will evolve. It will evolve. It will not just stay as it was. Um, so, um, all right. I've given you um, a number of examples now, and there's... Uh, there would be other things we could go on with, but let me just tell you where I'm going to be going with this next uh, time for anybody that's interested. Um, you'll see. I had a couple different uh, thoughts of where I would go with this, and uh, one is that uh, there's a possibility that there's somebody I'm going to talk to next time in a certain uh, kind of adversity, and, uh, if, and it depends on whether this would, would really work for her. Um, and... Uh, and there's uh, the other. The other thing I thought of doing was uh, just uh, staying one more session of the uh, podcast with this topic of this part of uh, ways of coping in hell, which is the part that has to do with being mindful. And I thought I would then uh, teach you, uh, those of you who don't know about it, and maybe just give my version of teaching it to those who do know about these things about the mindfulness skills in DBT, because. Like I say, observing is like the first building block, but uh, the biggest one, we've already covered most of the concepts of it. But I think it can be useful to know there's different specific things you can do to try to activate the wise part of yourself that knows better and that can distinguish reality from delusion, for instance, and that can make good decisions. Um, so... I, I think that would be the next topic. The other thing, and I'm going to check with Perry more about this. Um, she's already informed me I could do this. I might next time unmute you, those of you who are listening, whoever you are, uh, whoever's listening live. And with the, uh, in fact, why don't I plan on doing this, whatever else I do, at least for a bit. At the beginning, I think um, I'll invite you to ask me questions or to make comments about what I've been teaching about observing and bringing it into your life or the life of people you know. Um, so think about questions that might be uh, of, of meaning to you because I think you'll have a chance next time to, to ask some of them. Okay, so this is the end. It's 5, it's five o'clock Eastern Daylight Time, I think. So we'll end it now. I'm going to uh, tune in uh, in a week, minus an hour. And, uh, and these things will be on my website. Um, so be well, everybody. Take care. I uh, wish you the best for the coming week. Bye-bye. Recording has started.